and welcome to the Product Science Podcast, where we're helping startup founders and product leaders build high-growth products, teams, and companies through real conversations with people who have tried it and aren't afraid to share lessons learned from their failures along the way. I'm your host, Holly Hester-Riley, founder and CEO of H2R Product Science. This week on the Product Science Podcast, I'm interviewing Paul Orchanian. Paul is the president and CEO and founder of Bain Public, which was sold to Ex Machina. Paul is an exceptionally knowledgeable and well-rounded in all aspects of product management. He acquired the breadth of experience to find common denominators to make businesses successful through his leadership roles at San Francisco Bay Area startups and high-growth companies. A true consultant, coach, keynote speaker, and author all wrapped up in one, Paul is a pro in injecting strategies and tactics to monetize his clients' businesses. He writes a popular product management blog and is the creator of a number of product management methodologies, including SOAP, Planning, and Prioritization Framework. Welcome, Paul. Hi, nice to have me at your podcast. Yeah, thank you. So you mentioned in the pre-chat that Bain Public has an interesting story behind it. So I'd love to hear a little bit about that. Yeah, a lot of people ask me if I'm part of Bain Consulting Group. And actually, it's pronounced Bain Public, which is a French word for public bath. And originally, when I started the company, I always saw Roadmap as a cleansing experience, as a product manager's role is to basically take all of those bad ideas, good ideas, and basically like work with the leadership team on identifying which ones are going to add the most value to the business and which ones are going to add the most value and growth to the customers that we have. So, you know, in some ways, roadmapping is something that you do just like hygiene. You do it quite regularly and you need to basically cleanse yourself from the dirt, all those bad ideas, and eventually move with things that actually make the most sense for the organization. So the idea of Bain Public started from there, this cleansing exercise. And, you know, since we were on the theme of hygiene, we decided to create a framework, a methodology that we use, and we called it SOAP, since it's just the way anybody should cleanse their roadmap. Ah, interesting. Can you tell us a little more about that methodology? How does it work? Yeah, it's nothing extraordinary. It's just a best in breed of product management put together. The biggest issues we see, and I basically focused all of my effort in Montreal first because the Canadian product ecosystem is broken based on what I saw coming back from Silicon Valley, where there is no understanding of what a product manager does and what the difference is between them or a project manager, et cetera. And oftentimes we realize that product manager gets hired in an organization and they don't know what they need to do any given day, any given week. And there should be particular process for a product manager. If you were to just look at it within a three-month time frame, a quarter, a lot of things can happen within a quarter. The industry can change, the market can change, the consumers can change, the competitors can come up with new features. So it's important for product managers to at least get into this habit of basically just looking at what has changed and going back and grooming their backlog and develop this consistent, stable, and familiar routines that basically not only he or she knows how to accomplish, but also the leadership team, as well as all the other teams that are working around the product and engineering team can get accustomed to. So the SOAP framework is basically, what do you need to do every week? What do you need to accomplish as a product manager every single week in order to move your roadmap forward? So, you know, the first three to four weeks of any given quarter are really focused on strategy, just making sure that you're rebaselining things if things have changed drastically, if there's a pivot or persevere decision that needs to be made with the CEO. And then from week number four to eight, I would say you're really looking at your backlog or your parking lot of ideas, your galaxy of ideas, grooming them, understanding them, trying to find the problems and collecting them from different departments. And then then there's the prioritization process with the leadership team, which includes a lot of engineering scope discussions and definitions, and ultimately the enablement of that strategy or those roadmap decisions 
to the marketing team, to the support team, to the sales team. So this way that outbound communication can be done. So I call that four E's. So it's evaluate the market, execute on your evaluation of the market. You got to enable with your team in order to get that roadmap out. So it's that process. If we were to encapsulate everything a product manager should do in a three months time frame, let's put it all together and call it SOAP. That's basically what we do at Bain Public is we work with organizations on putting those processes in place, both from product manager perspective, but also from a leadership perspective. So this routine of doing this on a regular basis, every three months, we're doing the same things, gets reinforced through repetition and communication. And eventually the entire product is being led by the product team rather than being led by sales or marketing. It's interesting what you just said there about product teams being led by the product team itself versus being led by sales and marketing. Can you tell me a little more about the anti-pattern there, about the bad version? I mean, the bad version is, and you know, there's a lot of founders of organizations who believe that their organization can grow by increasing their footprints, right? Like the footprint expansion is a very, very tempting and easy thing to do. Uh, you can increase your footprint by marketing or by deploying a sales team across industries, across countries, and there's no bounds to the amount of, you know, closing you can do as a sales team, right? Ultimately, though, what happens is when the sales team collects all of those needs of the various industries, various geographies that they're closing deals on, they can basically create a backlog of things that don't really exist with the product, but nonetheless, they sold it. So now the, the engineering team is whiplashed by all these sales requests. We need to make sure this works for left to right languages. We need to make, to make sure that this actually works with euros versus pounds versus compliance, regulatory, all these issues prop up and the, the product team is not involved because they're just basically being taken over by this expansion that's very aggressive. So founders who usually try to balance things out by saying, okay, we're going to do expand our footprint at a pace of our innovation. And we're also going in the meantime, start looking at the optimizations that we can do in our workflows in order to increase our margin. So if a company is basically looking at how they could basically grow and scale at a pace where it's not just being driven by sales, then the product team can empower itself and allow for all these problems that are coming from all the, these various departments, let it be innovation needs, let it be a footprint expansion needs or optimization needs, basically all together to be able to provide value for the organization. So it's too often that founders, maybe they have this growth at all cost that comes from venture capital injections where product might not be mature enough, but you know, this the growth at all cost basically creates this fake it till you make it culture, right? Where the product manager is told simply to make it happen. And if it's manual, if it doesn't create efficiencies, so let it be because we just want to serve our customers. And eventually what happens is that you end up with a problem where for every 80 cents that the customer is paying, it's costing the company a dollar because every feature that was implemented by the engineering team without the knowledge of the product team, because they didn't define the what really, it was just basically the customer needs X and we need to implement X. So that basically comes with increased costs of support, increased costs of general and administrative because we have high churn that can come with increased costs of uh, rework uh, from the engineering team. And loss of trust from the marketing team who doesn't want to promote a product that's broken. So eventually that cost is something that burdens the company and there's more companies that die from indigestion from, than from starvation. So I feel that being sales-driven can really lead to just carrying extra weight for nothing. And that's usually what I use when we're talking about what's the benefit of a product manager. So tell me more about how you help a company that is struggling with too much sales leading the product. 
How do you help them to transition? Yeah, I mean, eventually you have to come face to face with the problem, right? And the problem is a human problem. This lack of prioritization that's happening and the internal politics that it's creating because it's being driven by sales, but there's sales teams in different countries, different geographies. So oftentimes that's, it creates this, this loss of direction where the companies are spinning constantly and people can't find the north. Or the sales team can come in with more requests faster than any other department of a company, right? As soon as a prospect mentions something, it's definitely goes straight to the backlog, right? So the product team is really set up to fail. And even though they're trying to work very hard, as well as the engineering team is trying to work very hard, you have a lot of employee burns and you get less done in some ways, right? So we basically approach it from a behavior, discipline, people issue perspective. Ultimately, it's, it's all about acknowledging the wasted resources. Engineering time or engineering energy is constantly being wasted by releasing features that don't get used, aren't getting communicated adequately by the sales or marketing department, or basically are, are failing to meet the, the needs of the customers. So those features that aren't important or necessary cost a lot to the company because that's actually time and energy that you're not going to recuperate. And so, you know, it's just acknowledging the burden of these unneeded features. And then how can we basically come in and help? So it comes down to putting a process in place that is collaborative. It's about a collaborative discovery. It's not just the sales team or the marketing team that leads. It has to be the CEO, the CFO. CFOs have a lot of information, the CIOs. So the C-suite together, which basically we create, we call those the product leadership teams. That's basically the executives or the VPs and directors who basically have a say in the evolution of the product. So the question is like, if we were to establish this team and this team is supposed to you know, empower the product team and basically nurture them and give them tools and processes. The question is, if you have a role to play, the first element that we need to align on is this high level strategy, this baselining of what are we trying to accomplish with this product? In other words, what's the mission or the vision of this product? What are the various strategies that we're going to use in order to get, you know, wherever we're trying to get to? What are the tactics that are we going to use within each strategy? And what metrics are we supposed to move? So this way we can always identify if we're actually moving in the right direction. So by collectively working with the leadership team, the product team is able to, you know, go back and forth and figure out this strategy, these tactics, these metrics, and eventually propose initiatives that align themselves to these strategies, tactics, and metrics. And once these initiatives have been presented, then collectively the product leadership team's role is to, you know, if you have six initiatives and you only have resources to accomplish two, then how do you choose the two? So it comes down to collaborative decision-making and a product manager needs to be able at that point to maneuver through these humans, which are the various directors and leaders, Make sure that these conversations have a beginning, a middle, and an end, and not just end up being full of grenades and potholes and tangents that basically lead to nowhere. Ultimately, you want to make a decision. So I think that ultimately, one of the things that we like to do is talk about what's whose responsibility, right? So a leadership team is really about hiring and developing a very strong product management team. It's the design, the nurture, the build, right? These are very important things, but it also involves offering guidance, direction, but not really telling them what to do. They're there to empower and foster collaboration. So how do you basically create cross-functional trust by bringing in a product manager or a product management team into a culture where the sales team, the marketing team, the CFO, the CEO, as well as the customer support team, VP or directors can collaboratively discuss the future of the product, the roadmap that's being proposed and collectively gets to give the green light on particular features or initiatives that are going to move forward. So there's this difference between consent and a consensus. So ultimately, the product manager role isn't to build consensus amongst this leadership team, and nor should they basically all get 
alignment and full agreement on everything, right? It's hard enough in a normal organization to get two people to agree to something. Imagine having a bunch of C-suites agree to everything. So I basically just try to get to consensus is not something that we're going to get to. But when a product manager comes to you with three or four initiatives and they all align with the tactics and strategies that you guys baseline, and ultimately you can only choose one or two, I just need consent, which means you do not agree, but you give me the green light to move this forward because ultimately it's for the good of the company. Yeah, that's like the Amazon saying about disagree and commit. Exactly. I always call it the fortitude, the constitutional fortitude to say that we're actually going to do this and we're going to be honest about it. We're going to do it and we're not going to go and start doing something else. As long as that honesty is there, and usually the commitment that I try to get from the leadership team is give us three months to figure this out and deliver it. And if anybody asks, when is this going to be delivered? Then it's going to be delivered at the end of the quarter. And if the engineers have it ready by, let's say, two months, then the sales team still needs to prepare itself. They need collateral. There's pricing decisions. The marketing team needs to update it on the website. They need to plan a campaigns, press releases, et cetera. The support team needs to create how-tos, videos, and talk to prospects and customers. So there's a lot of work to be done. So ultimately, it's not really about the date of when the engineers can deliver it. It's really about when us collectively as a team can basically be ready to bring this product to market. So dates ultimately end up being end of quarter releases rather than 17th of January and the 13th of June, right? Those are usually like those hasty, fast releases where the marketing team or the sales team isn't even aware that a feature got released. And that's the feature they asked for three months ago, but unfortunately, they're not even aware of it. And it just ends up biting uh, everyone in Yeah. So what you're describing is, you know, that there's a problem in the industry of there not being enough collaboration between product and marketing and sales and support where there's so much pressure to ship that people are shipping products without even having all those things in place for them. I agree. And usually what happens is when it's a small startup, let's say they're in pre-seed stage or seed stage, now the founder makes all the decisions because, you know, they founded the company based on some gray zone they identified in the market. And they have the knowledge of the industry. So they're able to make those calls. But as they start getting into financing discussions and fundraising and HR and establishing company cultures and hiring new people, they get really busy. So so this gridlock develops where everybody's expecting these founders to make the decisions, but they just don't have the time or the data to make the decision. So ultimately, marketing and sales step in. And it's very normal because they're a profit center. You know, sales closes deals and they get a lot of clients and a lot of requests come from clients. Same with marketing. So it's important to, at that point, for a leadership team to put in the right process. Do I need a product manager? And if I need a product manager, what should I expect from that person or that team within a quarter? And do I tell them what the strategy is? Do they challenge me regularly on the strategy and collectively we make a decision? It's getting harder and harder to do it since we've been working more in these distributed teams. Like COVID is one reason, but you know, a lot of companies are also trying to work with you know, engineers in a different department and various executives in different cities working on Zoom. Really isolates the product manager from having to get into this collaborative discussions, right? And it's hard to basically grab all six of them together. So one of the things that we try to tell product managers is try to pre-wire. Pre-wire is a word that came from McKenzie, where they basically describe it as the meeting before the meeting, where you try to asynchronously try to go talk to every single leader uh, from your organization. Five to 10 minutes informal, just validate something, just get their perspective and make sure that they're sympathized with what you're trying to present and eventually bring him into a meeting and to discuss it. 
rather than just waiting for the meeting and just bringing your ideas forward in isolation, which ultimately is going to create a lot of naysayers who basically just get shocked or you know taken aback by whatever you're proposing. Even though you spent six months on it, that doesn't mean that they've heard of it. So can they, the jerk reaction is to say, I'm, I'm against it or I don't agree. And that basically creates more trouble than anything to the product team. So I think it's important for the leadership team to initially invest in this collaborative culture, let it be in-person or let it be virtual, uh, allowing a product manager to go and talk to the VP of marketing, to have a discussion informally with the VP of sales and not to basically create silos between these departments and just say, you know, you guys work with engineers, we tell you what to do and just bring it downstream. That's a project manager as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. So. Do you have any stories from your career of this collaboration working out really well or conversely stories of it working out really poorly? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my first job as a product manager in San Francisco, I got fired. (laughs) I I love to talk about that story. And it's because I was the guy with the chip on his shoulder who knew everything about the customer, who knew everything about the data, who knew everything about the industry and market. Because that's what they tell you that you should do as a product manager, right? You should be knowledgeable about everything. So I just went out there and started the industry in isolation. And I studied the market in isolation. And I spoke to customers in isolation. And I I look at the analytics in isolation and the competitors in isolation. And when I got into a meeting room with the marketing team, their competitive study didn't align with mine. Their perspective didn't align with mine. And instead of just listening and taking that in and really using that to, to truly understand, I was just, you know, just making a case. You're wrong. I'm right. I did the same with the sales team and I did the same with the engineering team and I did the same with other departments. And eventually everybody caught on to the fact that I just was the smartest guy in the room and that they just didn't want that guy in the room because he talks too much, right? Uh, He might be right and he might be wrong, but, you know, product manager is a human game, right? Like ultimately, if you want to collaborate with others, then you should be open to collaboration. And I wasn't, you know, I, I was simply fearful of not being perceived as, the person who comes prepared, right? So maybe I was overdoing it, but by overdoing it and sucking all the oxygen in the room, I ended up not creating the collaborative environment for the product to succeed. And despite the fact that the product did well, I think that it was more of a can't stand you, but the product is doing well (laughs) relationship and eventually led me to being fired just for not being the right fit. That was the only reason I got. My um, personal uh, interpretation of that is we just don't like working with you. And that's the worst thing a product manager can hear. And I think these days, because we're working in these distributed virtual spaces, it's too easy for a product manager to make the same mistake. The luxury of working alongside one another co-working in the same workplace is that we should be able to listen to one another, also be the non-verbal cues are more obvious. And uh, as a product manager, you could start working the, the human aspect of making sure people are aware that you are listening to their needs and their problems and product evolution, but you're able also to say no, right? And in order to prevent some bad ideas from moving forward. An example of where it worked, I could say with most of our clients right now, we try to make sure the product manager is playing dumb. By that, I mean, you know, you just show up unprepared. And that's what I tell most of them is show up unprepared to meetings. So you're going to meet with VP of marketing, just show up and ask what and how questions, you know, like, what do you think about our competitors and how do you think they're doing? And do you think their features are working? And same with the sales team. What are you hearing from prospects and what do you think the deals are closing, et cetera? Try to elicit from them the information you need. Uh, the problems they're having. And, you know, it's more important to maintain human relationships with these people than to basically try to prove to them that you know better than them. 
but usually nowadays everything seems to be working fine. <laughs> and then despite the you know two years at COVID, you know the company has grown based on great uh, organic growth because one customer tells the other customer know that hey, you know there's this process that's basically working, and my product manager that I hired has really created like a great bond with the rest of my other department. The trust is high, the collaboration is high, and we're making decisions collaboratively, and that's really leading the company down a great direction. But I can't take the credit for the companies themselves, mainly because luck has a lot to do with it, timing has a lot to do with it. So if they manage to raise and become successful, I think product management has something to do with it. But again, there's a lot of factors as well. Yeah, that makes sense. So I know that you worked in Silicon Valley for a while, and you mentioned the first company that you worked for as a product manager. What are some of the other steps in your journey that were good learning grounds for you? You know, it's funny because I started as an engineer doing a lot of flash work. I don't know if you guys remember the Adobe Flash days, but back then... I sure do. <laughs> what was really interesting in those days was as an engineer, you're also a creative you're also a product manager. These days, software development is something that's being done by teams who work collaboratively together on GitHub or something, right? Like, whereas in those days, everything was done on one file and one computer with one guy who also had to animate, create, and design and make sure the interface looked good, but also make sure that it worked. So it was a great time where, you know, I think that I learned a lot about various aspects of product management, the definition of the want, the figuring out how to do it, and then basically the trial and error with the customer in order to make sure that things are working. So we ended up doing, I mean, when I moved to San Francisco, it was all marketing gimmicky websites, right? But then we started going more and more into e-commerce. I worked with Palm and Starbucks and Seagate on delivering their corporate websites that had e-commerce components and stuff. And those were big projects. I remember when the Palm Prey was coming out, which was their iPhone killer, just working on the operating system there was a lot of fun. And it was just an opportunity to work in bigger organizations that have big structures and product management is kind of lost in all of that mm -hmm. and how you make decisions and the VPs and the SVPs and the EVPs that are involved in decision-making and how do you basically bring a roadmap down that it gets a little bit harder, but especially like the, the Palm was a, quite an interesting situation because we were launching a brand new phone with a brand new operating system, with a brand new website with uh, you know, a complete like rip and replace from, from the old. And it was just uh, make it or break it. And they ended up basically being sold to HP right after that. But it was just like this, this moment in time where we're just striving for that iPhone market. And I realized how hard it is to bring an entire company together, right? Like in startups, you're working with five or six people, then that grows to 20 and 30 and 40, but it's completely different than hundreds of people, right? So you need to be a motivator. You need to be able to anchor yourself on this big, hairy, ambitious goal you're trying to do as an organization. So this way, whoever you meet from any department, let it be engineering, let it be support. I mean, we're talking about departments of hundreds of people with various people working in different countries. And how do you basically anchor yourself to this unique goal, this objective that you're all collectively trying to get to? Product management in those organizations is pretty hard. And I think that's important for a product manager to ask the question straight out from the executives and the leadership teams like, okay, can you tell me what this high level motivating one liner I can use to basically get all these people aligned? You know, I mean, what is the big, hairy, ambitious goal here? If you can articulate it, then I'll use it. But if you can articulate it, then I think it's fair for a product manager to work with them on finding it out. Because once you find out what it is, 
it's a lot easier for you to do your job. Yeah, that's one of the things I often find myself coaching earlier career PMs on is that if you're not getting that guidance, if you're not getting that clear vision from leadership, then you need to push for it. You need to work on building it. You need to have an opinion on what it might be and drive that forward. I think there's two aspects of product managers responsible of it. I don't think we talk about it a lot, but there's the baselining of the high level strategy. That's something that can be done with the leadership team and revise on a regular basis, which is the motivating reasons behind the product as well as the reasons why you should say no to people on features, right? Because it doesn't align with the strategy or et cetera. So that's one aspect. And then there's a roadmapping, which is a completely different thing, right? I mean, you can't roadmap without that high level strategy, but I mean, whose job is it to do this high level strategy? I ultimately feel the product leadership needs to give it to the product team and up to the product team to review it, revise it, and keep it updated and challenge it back to the leadership team on a regular basis, asking them pivot or persevere questions on various strategies and tactics. Oftentimes, we find that product managers are set up to fail where there is no high-level strategy, they're being told what to do, and you know they just need to bring the product uh, roadmap downstream. And I don't know what it takes for a product manager in an organization to say, no, this is not good. And I'm basically going to approach the leadership team. I'm going to ask them to collaboratively figure out what the high-level strategy is. It really depends if they're open to it. And if a product manager figures out that they're not open to defining or articulating that high-level strategy, then I think as a product manager, you should actually ask yourself what you're doing in that company. Yeah, I agree. That's definitely, you know, an element that a lot of product managers face, you know, especially earlier in their career before they've had a chance to really see a lot of different environments and know what a good environment for a product person to succeed in looks like. It can be hard to know. Well, I think that most product managers spend about a year on average per company they work in. And I, I find that's very, very telling of how much churn there is, not because the product manager is not good at their job, but mainly if I'm going to spend a year in one company to figure out, no, this is a bait and switch. This company does not have a high level strategy and they're not interested in having me collaborate on it, moving on to another one and then doing it five companies in a row for over five years. A lot of people look at that resume and say, well, this guy's no good, right? He just moved on for five companies. What can he do? But ultimately, if you didn't find that environment, why should you stick around, right? And I think it's important for us as a community to acknowledge that there are some companies that are doing it right and some companies that aren't doing it at all. You know, I, I don't think we should build a website to say this company's right and this company's wrong. And, you know. <laughs> but it might be interesting to at least identify what are the signs of an environment that doesn't really empower product. At the end of the day, it's a huge difference if you are being empowered versus if you're not. And I think that like, if there is a way of identifying that at an interview, it saves people a lot more time. Yeah. If you're able to get that picture in an interview, one of my favorite questions to ask interviewers is how do you make prioritization decisions here? And you know, I'm hoping to hear from them that there's a big picture strategy and vision that they're working under the confines of, but sometimes it's very clear that that's not the case. Yeah. I agree with you that it's sometimes it's clear. Sometimes what you hear from HR or from the hiring manager is one thing. Once you get into an organization, you quickly realize that that there is a problem that usually takes you six months to figure it out, right? I hate that bait and switch situation where you're constantly having to face. But I think the more and more leaders are understanding the value of being product-led. I think it's now become a buzzword, which is great. And everybody's seeking to be product-led. And now the question is, what do you need to do to become product-led? Do you expect your product managers to intrinsically start bringing that culture in and fight the big sales team with their... Uh, 
you know, rainmakers or bring in these third party organizations who, who can come in and help. Right. And that's where we position being public. Mm-hmm. So how long has Bain Public been around? We've been around for four years. And within that four years, we've worked mainly with startups, saw those startups become scale-ups, which is great. But we also realized that a lot of SMB organizations, especially brick and mortar organizations who have products and are trying to get into this digital world, have this need of being product-led. You know, these are like older companies that have a serious good products, but aren't in the digital space. And every time they try to bring their product or innovate through new products digitally fail, they don't understand why. (laughs) And then you suddenly realize that they they have everything figured out and they're just hiring some third-party company to basically build it. Basically, it's like, well, have you guys thought about doing this in a build, measure, learn approach and, you know, minimum viable product and figure out a roadmap and try to iteratively get to the promised land rather than nailing it the first time around. And what have you been finding when you bring that methodology forward? What is their response like? I think it depends on the company and the culture that's been established. I find that most organizations, like in this case, we're talking about a small and medium organizations. I find that they have stories. Everybody has stories. We tried that 30 years ago. We tried that 20 years ago. And <laughs> you get it. As a product manager, you have to spend a lot of time listening to these backstories they have. Every department has one of why it failed, why it should not work, etc. And then opening them up to the realities of the new world. It's like It doesn't mean it failed three years ago or five years ago that it's not a good idea. You know, sometimes it was just the execution. Sometimes it was just circumstances. Sometimes it was just the bad timing, right? But I do find that there's collaborative discussions but I find there isn't firm decision-making because of the history that company has had in the past. So it takes a lot to bring in that culture. And usually they suffer from uh, a CEO or a founder who's basically called the Moses syndrome, where he kind of comes in with, you know, it's these 10 commandments and that's how the company has survived for the last 30 years. And it's very hard to get them to buy in. It takes a lot of influencing to get those companies to move forward. But it's a great challenge because there's a richness in their products that just if interpreted the right way could work. But there's a lot of also a lot of busy work uh, to be removed. Sometimes like you you suddenly get into trans- digital transformation where you realize that the marketing team is working in a particular area, the customer support team is operating via email and you're like, well, guys, we can't build a company this way. So there's a lot of efficiencies you need to focus yourself on. And quickly their product management and the roadmap turns from innovation to just efficiencies you know how do we basically create process power to continuously improve the company's processes for it for that company to be ready for a digital product and do i think that's product management in some ways it is i mean like does implementing zen hub over email product manager no but it's a build versus buy decision that needs to be done over a roadmap prioritization process and you know ultimately they go with zen hub um, and yeah it's a SaaS and it's plug and play it's easy to go but it's still uh, the evolution you know i don't think a, a regular startup would do the same thing anyways they would have to like go and implement various tools in various departments it just so happens that it's done organically because the startup has starting from scratch that they don't have to deal with 30 years of history of managing customers over the phone and eventually over email yeah 
it strikes me, you know, as a product manager and spending so much time in startups, hearing the idea that there's 20 or 30 years of history at a company is an unusual experience. Mm-hmm. I've worked with clients that are either big e-commerce firms or something like that. And those companies have that kind of history that they've been around since before the internet. But it's also so common for us to work on companies that are less than five years old yeah. that, you know, navigating that culture of 20, 30 years of decision making must be a sort of different. It takes a lot of listening, I find. It's like you almost feel your shrink having to listen to every department and their stories. But I think like once you use your listening powers, I call them powers. If you're using your ears twice as much as your mouth, actually being able to you know, ask the right questions and basically use that listening to influence them to try something new. I don't, if you don't take the time to listen, you just end up just telling them what to do. And that's usually not going to work because you're dealing with 30 years history of doing things a particular way. So it's, you can't change it overnight. So for you to get that influence collateral, let's just say, you need to enter a lot of listening into that bank account, right? And the question really is if you, you know, if you're given like six months or one year to turn a company around, how much listening do you need to do before you get everybody going the right direction? And, uh, and at which point do, can people from the outside looking at you say, all I see him doing is just listening, right? Like he just, he just gets in meetings and talks or he's always having coffee with people or having informal discussions, but I'm trying to understand what he's really doing. And ultimately, like you're just trying to, like influence I feel like is, is like a bank account. Like you keep adding, you know, these brownie points after every long conversation where 80% of conversation was listening and 20% was asking questions. And if you do that over time, you end up with a lot of influence in the, in the bank and then you can start using it. But if you're, do people perceive that as being a contributor to productivity? I don't know. You know, so a lot of product managers can end up in those situations and, you know, uh, being perceived negatively within three months because they're like, well, I don't think things are moving forward. And, you know, in some ways you're, you are doing it. You're just being a shrink, right? And I think product manager is in some ways being a shrink as well, right? Yeah, I think so too. I often find myself feeling like I'm spending time as a therapist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, we need to have those skills, but we also need to be aware of how people are perceiving us and the actions that we do. So, you know, I mean, the only trick I can say is like, the, you know, using informal conversations rather than formal ones, so instead of getting inside a meeting room and, you know, talking to an executive, try to, you know, have the conversation around coffee or water cooler or outside informally over beers or something. But you know, use the nine to five to, you know, actually, you know, groom the backlog and work on strategy, et cetera, and then do the listening afterwards, which means that you have to commit a lot more time to the job. That's the part where you kind of really start balancing your mental health as well. So that's, it's, it's a burden. I like what you just said too, about, you know, using the nine to five for some of the, you know, backlog grooming and other things, and then listening after. I think it made a change in my career when I started treating work socialization as work and saying, you know, I'm going to show up to that happy hour because there might be an opportunity for me to move forward something that I care about. And, you know, because I want to build relationships with my coworkers. Is that something that you've found in your career as well? Yeah, I'm a big fan of trying to add to your bank of influence using these informal. So it could just be cigarettes outside, you know, here in Montreal, people still smoke. <laughs> so just grabbing a cigarette, even though you're not a smoker, just going outside and spending some time with them. Try to identify those spaces, especially with the engineering team. That's the engineers usually don't want to speak. They rather speak to compilers all day, right? So now the question is, how do I basically get them to listen? So, and then morphing yourself into whatever culture you're in. I think that ultimately... 
you know, if you don't do it, you're pretty much at risk. You know, it's funny. Once I interviewed a product manager who gave me all these soft answers, exactly what I'm just saying. And I said, this guy is unhirable. Product management is about like hard things like grooming backlogs and Moscow method versus uh, et cetera. Like we, we like these buzzwords in product. And this guy was all, you know, his entire interview was about the human side of things. And I thought it was so soft, but, you know, years later, I realized how important it is. Yeah, it really is. So we're getting up to the end of our time. And I want to ask you what advice you would give to a product manager who is in this position that you've described where, you know, maybe they don't have the right things around them, the right vision and strategy and things that set them up to succeed. How would they recognize that and what should they do? I mean, I think that I always see, I like using the baseball reference that uh, Hank Aaron, who's in the Baseball Hall of Fame, has a 305 lifetime batting average. That means he failed seven out of 10 times. And I think as a product manager, you shouldn't strive to basically nail every single feature and have it basically contribute to the growth of the company. You just need to get three out of 10 correctly. And if you just take a look at your company, you know, like if the company is, you know, maybe hedging 10 bets and two out of those 10s are good one and the other eight fail. And all you need to do is work with uh, collaboratively with the leadership team on just increasing that two out of 10 to three out of 10. And your batting average is going to be 300, just like Hank Aaron. So it's not that big of a leap, right? Most organizations are doing one thing right. They have some kind of a product market fit. You know, so even though it's not collaborative, even though uh, there's some smart people in the back and they're doing something right. So it's just a question of like, can you identify the diamond in the rough here? And you know, what are the odds of success without a roadmap? It's two out of 10. Imagine if it was three out of 10, the odds of success would be Hall of Fame caliber. So how can you basically just infiltrate this organization and just have an input of one, right? I, I think it's worth a shot for every product manager to try to infiltrate the leadership team and say, you know, I want trust, I want collaboration, I want empowerment, I want you guys to nurture us. So Let's work together. Use the, the influence skill, the listening skills to be able to, you know, at least do an attempt of baselining the high level strategy of the organization and give, giving himself the tools to, to say no as well as to motivate others. And if that fails and it fails miserably, then it's time to move on. And if it succeeds, then that gives you the foundation for a roadmap. And then you can just anchor yourself on that. And then eventually you'll get three out of 10 right and you'll be doing pretty well for yourself. Yeah. I like that analogy. So if people want to learn more about you and Bain Public, where should they go? Uh, you can go to bainpublic.com. We have an ebook. We have about 60 articles uh, that have been published over the years on the topic of product management. A lot of the stuff that we discussed is available there on our blog. We have a Medium page. We have an Instagram page, a LinkedIn page. You can find us anywhere. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Paul. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. This was a lot of fun. The Product Science Podcast is brought to you by H2R Product Science. We teach startup founders and product leaders how to use the product science method to discover the strongest product opportunities and lay the foundations for high-growth products, teams, and businesses. Learn more at h2rproductscience.com. Enjoying this episode? Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's episode. I also encourage you to visit us at productsciencepodcast.com to sign up for more information and resources from me and our guests. If you like the show, a rating and review would be greatly appreciated. Thank you.